All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode. We're going to talk about how the housing affordability crisis is impacting Latino households with Agatha So, Senior Policy Analyst with the Economic Policy Project at Unidos U.S. Unidos U.S., which you might know as the, uh, formerly the National Council of La Raza, uh, is the nation's largest Latino nonprofit advocacy and services organization. Uh, Unidos U.S. Is, is a steering committee member of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign as well. Uh, in her role, Agatha works to expand Unidos U.S.'s visibility, expertise, and impact in housing policy with an emphasis on fair housing, uh, access to credit, language access, issues related to uh, mortgage market and housing finance issues. Uh, previously, Agatha was a Open Society Institute Baltimore Program Fellow working on a project to increase access to affordable home ownership for Latino and immigrant families. And with her previous employer in Baltimore, the Southeast Community Development Corporation, she coordinated the organization's community outreach activities and neighborhood-based projects, and, and she supported the housing counseling department as well. She received her master's in social work from the University of Maryland School of Social Work and a bachelor's in psychology from Simmons College in Boston. So Agatha, welcome to the podcast. Really happy to have this conversation today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. So let's uh, let's start with you, just kind of introducing yourself to the audience. What's what's not in your official bio? Why do you do this work? What gets you up every morning? That's a great question, Mike. I think the real motivation for my work is really grounded in the community work that I started out doing in Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, so many years ago, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> Almost time flies when you're ago. having fun. Yeah. It is. Uh, so working with the Latino community in Southeast Baltimore, it was an area that had an, an seri- and a kind of compilation of neighborhoods where uh, historically 
a lot of change had taken place and uh, Latinos had really started to rebuild neighborhoods, start small businesses, revive uh, and restore mm -hmm. neighborhoods that really had been left behind, not only by the effects of the Great Recession, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but even dating further back to you know, historical issues like uh, white flight in the 70s, mm -hmm. as well as changes in the economics of, of the broader city, large in the, you see in the 60s and 70s with the exit of larger employers like Bethlehem Steel, Baltimore became uh, just a different kind of city and Latinos, mm -hmm. uh, both immigrants and native born communities were, were really reviving uh, the, the sense of place and redefining family and, you know, neighborhood feel. And so when I worked in Southeast Baltimore, I started to meet communities and especially uh, Latina moms who were very interested in settling down, buying a home, securing a better future for their families. And that really yeah. inspired me to think more deeply and critically about some of the the issues, uh, not not just the problems, but also some of the potential solutions for uh, solving these historic and systemic issues that were really challenging for families to succeed and get ahead. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Unidos US as, a, as an organization and then kind of your role within that broader organization. So through research advocacy prog and programs, especially our network of nearly 300 community-based affiliate organizations, Unidos US really tries to challenge the social, economic, and political barriers that affect Latinos at the national, state, and local levels. So what does that mean for someone like me at uh, Unidos US? Mm -hmm. I my, my title is Senior Policy Analyst. However, what that sounds like for <laughs> the outside audience and what that looks like on a daily basis uh, probably is very different. Yeah. Uh, my, my role here is more on the economic empowerment side. So I look at uh, policies that hinder or foster greater housing opportunities for Latinos at every level, but most um, mostly on the federal level, looking at how policies and laws are uh, supporting Latinos to build wealth through homeownership, uh, policies that are making it more difficult for Latinos to save money in the rental housing market, looking at trends, uh, conducting research, working with a variety of partners across the country, but most especially with our affiliates who are on the ground and really um, feeling the effects of the affordable housing crisis and also thinking about how to help communities become more resilient, how do you build on strengths, uh, coalesce around shared issues, and really inform the work uh, that could be brought to the national level. Yeah, great, great. I, I 
I was I was laughing when you were talking about um, your your job title and what it sounds like to the outside world and what it actually looks like. <laughs> I, I've had several of those. I've had some bombastic titles in the past. When, when I worked at the school district, I was the chief of innovation, and it, you know people were like, "Ooh, ah," and I'm like, "Nah, it doesn't actually play, it doesn't actually play out like that." So I I got a good chuckle from that. But um, thanks for sharing that. And I, I'll just say, Unidas US has been such a great partner. Um, along the way with the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. And, and you all just do tremendous, tremendous, important work day in and day out. Um, so I want to um, I want to dive into the a report that Unidas U.S. published last October. Um, and it's called uh, Calling at Home Latino Rental Housing Affordability. And the report features... The findings of I think it was twenty five. Is that right? Twenty five interviews. Right. Okay, so there were mm-hmm. there were twenty five uh, pretty in depth interviews uh, with Latino renter households in a couple different cities: uh, New York City, D.C., San Francisco, Phoenix, Denver, Orlando, and Vegas. Um, and what you know, I want to walk through all the all the different findings because it's really really interesting. But but overall, I, I think the findings show that. You know that the, the housing crisis is is particularly acute for Latino households, and so uh, we'll get into the report. But but before we get into the findings, I just kind of wanted to to ask you what precipitated this report. You know, why did your organization decide to do this in the first place? There's only so much organizational capacity and energy, but you all decided to do this. I'm I'm curious why. Mike, that's a great question, and I think that question that we are asking is why now? Why did we want to explore Mm, the state of affordable housing or housing affordability for Latino families 10 years after the housing foreclosure crisis? We knew from previous research that more U.S. households today are renting than any, any other point in the last 50 years. In 2019, Latinos are twice as likely to rent their homes than whites. And specifically, we knew in 2017, one in four renters across race and ethnicity were burdened by rental costs. So we had some information about the broader crisis and what families across the country were facing at a high level. But we really wanted to understand how the impact and the lingering impacts of the housing crisis uh, were affecting Latinos, particularly in their housing situations. Okay. So you, you probably know, as, as, as much research has already showed us, that Latino and Hispanic households were hit particularly hard and have been slower to return to home ownership and build the wealth they lost as a result of the housing and foreclosure crisis. Yeah. Ten years later, we really wanted to learn what those lingering effects were and Knowing that homeownership was out of reach for so many, uh, we also knew anecdotally that Latinos were living in high-cost cities. Among those mm-hmm. cities that you you mentioned were connected uh, to our report, uh, and especially cities where rents were were rising faster than wages. So, just giving the given those national trends, hearing anecdotally from the field and from our affiliates how much of an issue this is. We really wanted to explore and take a deeper dive into what it means to be uh, to have the experience uh, of a renter as uh, as a Latino family. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So talk to us real quick. Um, I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but just kind of the, the methodology of it. I mean, we talked about how it was interviews. What, how, did, how did you conduct this? How did you yeah, put it all together? Unidos U.S. partnered with the UNC Center for Community Capital based in Raleigh, North Carolina, okay. to design and conduct the research. We also drew on our affiliate network. So we partnered with affiliates in seven cities, focusing on high-cost areas like Washington, D.C. and New York City, and in places where we've heard, you know, again, from this more of this anecdotal yeah. Uh, information that families were struggling to pay rent and make ends meet. So we expanded the reach. We reached out to our affiliates who were in other parts of the country and other housing markets that weren't as obviously uh, stretched or in crisis mode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we decided let's let's investigate what's happening there. So we interviewed a total of 25 families in addition to DC and New York City in Denver, Colorado, Phoenix, Arizona, Orlando, Florida, Las Vegas, and another high-cost area, San Francisco. Okay. Um, and so let's, before we dig into each of the findings, because there's, there's several findings uh, mm-hmm. throughout this, just what are, what are the high-level findings? Um, what are some of the key uh, takeaways here from the report? So as you said, there are so many the uh, yeah. high level, you know, so many findings. Yeah. What I think is really critical to think about are the themes because mm-hmm. this was a qualitative research study, which means we were able to uh, get stories that helped us identify the key themes and findings. So instead of thinking, well, this is exactly what Latinos are facing, and now we need to find the data to support that. Instead, we mm-hmm. utilized the stories to drive the findings. Yeah. So we found that families across the country, across these you know, C7 cities, were struggling to save money. And some had to come back, cut back on necessary expenses to afford the rental housing. In addition, and very interestingly, um, affordability was a key reason people had chosen their current homes. Affordable yeah. rental units were simply worth hanging on to, especially when few affordable homes were available. Yeah. And every every participant we spoke with expressed a desire to own a home. However, all felt it would be particularly difficult to find a home they could afford to buy. So I think one of the things that, one of the richer um, parts of the findings that I think is is worth noting is that and and adds a little bit color to this idea of why are families struggling to save? I I looked at some looking at some of the demographics and the and actually the in household income for most of our most of the families we interviewed. Mm-hmm. So I said there were twenty five, and most of them were earning low or you know modest wages. So mm-hmm. yeah, uh, about twenty percent earned twelve thousand dollars a year or less. And 40% earn between twenty four dollars and $38,000 a year. Okay. Now, if you can imagine someone living in San Francisco or New York City earning $12,000 yeah. or less a year, yeah. you can only imagine how, how hard it is yeah. to see. Yeah. Yeah. And even, I mean, even not in San Francisco, right? Even in some of these 
lower cost cities, and this is you know the the work of of uh, the National Low Income Housing Coalition of even in what we might think of as as lower cost areas, when you're making that sort of money, um, you know, a safety and affordable home is out of reach pretty much everywhere. And I, I was just I was talking to a, a, a friend the other day who lives in a pretty rural area, and I was just sort of telling him about what I do and. He said, "Well, you know, housing prices aren't aren't too bad here." And I said, "Yeah, man, but that's because you don't make seven twenty five an hour with with unpredictable mm-hmm. hours, right? Like when you make seven twenty five an hour, when you're twelve thousand dollars or less a year, everything is is out of reach. So, yeah, that, that I'm glad you pointed out the the income levels of the folks that you interviewed. That's absolutely right, Mike. That, and I think that the uh, another finding or a theme we heard." Uh, emerging from the families who were talking about what it means to try to make ends meet and to meet the requirements of their the standard of living you yeah. know in their communities that most of the families we spoke with were you know spending close to half of their incomes on housing each month so the other yeah. side of the story is not just that families were not earning enough but they were burdened yeah. by yeah. rental costs and that is it's a difficult conversation to have to, with someone when you talk about, you know, the affordability of housing and say, well, there are plenty of places for you to live at the, you know, at the yeah, income right. that you're earning. Right. However, we don't, we don't always ask and federal policies are not always looking at and measuring, you know, the cost uh, that it, the burden, the amount mm-hmm. of money and amount of that income that goes to, uh, paying for your for your housing and, and utilities and water and all of these other costs yep. that seem very invisible when we think about the federal standard, right? The thirty percent, mm-hmm. yep. you know, the thirty thirty percent of your income is supposed to be dedicated to housing. That that's going to supposedly going to be your magic number to be financially secure and stable. However, that's not a reality, uh, an economic reality for most people in our country. Yeah. Yeah, so let's. I want to go into kind of each of the um, each of the uh, themes here a little bit more. So, so first, there's just you know a theme came out around the rental experience, right? Mm-hmm. And and a, a takeaway there was that um, the households that you interviewed are, are relatively dissatisfied um, with the mm-hmm. rental experience for a variety of reasons. Hoping you can expound on some of those reasons. What folks said about renting and why they're not particularly happy with it. Sure. And I think that some, I'll share with you a few stories because yeah, I please. think yeah. that's exactly how we, uh, how best to explain what might be some of the dissatisfaction, mm-hmm. what would be maybe the reasons for a lot of the dissatisfaction. And I, I don't think that any of these stories are surprising. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> for example, when we talked with families, we found that renters expressed greater satisfaction with their homes when they're in good condition mm-hmm. and when they live in neighborhoods uh, where the amenities and resources they need are available. So on the flip side, when renters were living in areas that were less safe mm-hmm. or where they were not very pleased with the structure and conditions of their housing, you know, they were they were certainly less satisfied. 
so one of the one of the cases here that I'll share is uh, for Sophia, a uh, 42-year-old mother of three living in a rent-controlled unit in New York City. Mm. You know, she says that really her, you know, she has very, very little, very few options in New York City to move yeah. uh, without sacrificing affordability. Mm -hmm. So essentially, what, what kind of conditions, uh, you know, might she be tolerating in an extremely right. expensive city? And she says... A lot of time, there are a lot of problems in the building. I, I'm tired of that. Since I moved to the apartment, I've been having problems because I have a lot of mold in one of the rooms. The other rooms have, uh, you know, are, are experiencing leaks. There's a big leak in the roof. Um, you know, and I keep telling the landlords to fix it. They said, yes, we're going to fix it. They're going to do something. Um they don't do major things. So you know, living in this place, I have to deal with mold and sometimes mice and their mice infestations. I have to send an email to the management office to let them know about my tenants rights because, uh, yeah. because if I just send an email saying, Hey, listen, I have this problem. I have mold in the room. They'll say, okay, you know, just wait for us to come in. Uh, no, I actually have to be more proactive and I have to write a letter saying, uh, according to this, according to my lease, I have the right to ask for remediation and you have 24 hours to come and fix it. So oftentimes when we think about satisfaction with housing and especially as a tenant, when you can, in, in, and as we know and understand in power dynamics, a tenant is not the owner of the property, so they often have to go and demand it. But when you are living in a, in a situation where you're, you're this is your only affordable options, right. there are sacrifices you make despite, and, and one of them might be satis satisfaction and, and living conditions. Yeah. It goes back to something you mentioned earlier where, you know, affordability is, you know, throughout all these interviews, affordability was a key reason that people chose their current home. And what you're pointing to is, you know, without affordability, there is so little choice, right? Um, and so people are, are choosing um, places that they're going to be dissatisfied with because it's just what they can afford. So without without affordability, there's very little um, choice. Um, I want to um, hit a little bit more on uh, these sorts of, like, really, I mean, ex extreme living conditions. Mm -hmm that people are, are willing to, well, willing's probably not even the right word, that people are forced to endure um, just to afford housing. Um, and there were, I, there were several interviews in there that, you know, people are doubling up, they're putting beds near the kitchen. I mean, they're, they're, there's all sorts of, of really sort of unhealthy, overcrowded conditions mm -hmm. that, that people are willing to put up with. Hoping you can talk to that a little bit more. So I'll share one particular story that I find very illuminating because even the example of 42 year old Sophia is, is quite extreme yeah. uh, living. She lives in an eight by 10 apartment in, in New York city and it's, it's rent control. Um, and she has, you know, she has a family, so it's, it can only yeah. be sorry. But in, in another yeah. extreme situation, an example in San Francisco, we spoke with a 75 year old woman, uh, who explained that she and her husband have lived for the past 18, 18 years in the same rent-controlled one-room one studio apartment with their adult son, 
who is developmentally disabled. Uh, they remain in this very small space because the rent is low and remains manageable, right. and they live in a neighborhood where they feel safe. Uh, safety is especially important as Lucia uh, considers her son. You know, she said to us in her current apartment, everybody knows her son and they've never had any issues uh, because they all recognize him. So basically everybody knows him and I don't have to worry about his safety there. It was very important uh, to understand that the extreme situations people are living in are, are often the cost that families uh, are, are bearing in exchange for, for another yeah. benefit they're seeking or an amenity they're seeking. Right. And, and so they may not view this as an extreme situation. They may not say, well, this is my extreme living situation. Uh, but when you learn and hear from families about how they uh, survive and manage, um, I think it's a particularly uh, interesting interesting thing um, to see you know how how families are managing to to remain where they are and also uh, you know to be to be able to, to survive and, and make make things work um, another another family um, in in Las Vegas that we that we spoke with um, you know one of the things uh, she said that is you know, we have a two bedroom and they're both considered master bedrooms. They're very big in size. Uh, they both have their ba bathrooms. We have a little patio. It's one of the things that we uh, may, may think of as the, Amer you know, more of a dreamlike right. <laughs> aspirational state. Yeah. Uh, but when you contrast this with uh, what Sophia and uh, Lucia, so you you're, you're you know, families in New York and mm -hmm. San Francisco, you're doing with your, you're thinking, wow, you know, what, what's the standard here? How should people be living? And what is an adequate space? What is adequate space uh, for us? Um, and, you know, I think, I think another, another story that I want to share is because I think this is from a family in, in Denver, uh, 28 year old Santiago who lives with his wife and three children says our apartment is cheap. It's a one bedroom only. So this is, these are two adults living with three children in a one bedroom wow. place. It's it's actually pretty big um, because we have our queen size bed and the kids have their bunk beds and we still have pretty good space in there, but we have to share rooms with the kids. Now the kids are getting older. We're always fighting for the restroom. Right. Yeah. yeah, it gets tricky. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we actually even had to get a storage unit. So to think about how families are making these affordable places work, uh, you know, for them is is very interesting and oftentimes um, very much, a you know, we always wonder, like, how do you do it? And uh, families are always fi finding a way just because these places are affordable. The um, you you mentioned uh, on this earlier about these, like the trade offs on other expenses um, that people have, and this is obviously a key theme of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. Like one of the key things, one of the key cases that we try to make is that when housing is unaffordable, 
a lot of other things start to fall apart. Mm-hmm. So people are cutting back on healthcare. They're cutting back on uh, transportation. They're cutting back on, um, you know, uh, learning activities and educational materials for their kids. Um, did did that come up as a as a uh, as a theme in, in the interviews that people were making trade offs in other aspects of life? Yeah, certainly people were. I think the most significant uh, trade off that I think we heard. From, from families is that there was the decision about where your money is going to go. Yeah. At the end of the month, after you've paid rent, yeah. what other bill uh, can right. I pay? What other uh, places, uh, what other areas and places can I uh, cut back? So, you know, while we have, you know, some, some instances for example, we, we spoke with uh, Victoria and her family in Orlando, uh, you know, where, where she says that at the end of the month, there's no money left. Um, and when she when we asked her, you know, what kind of what examples or what are things that they give up in order to afford their rent? She says, you know, we give up vacations, holidays, family entertainment. We don't go to the movies, the money that's there to pay the rent, other expenses. And that's it. So we might not think well, is it really important to go on a vacation? <laughs> is it really yeah. important to, you know, go to the movies? And that might, you know, somebody would say, well, that's just not something you should be uh, concerned about, right? But if you think about having absolutely no disposable income, yeah. no money at the end of the month, uh, it's it's quite another, another thing. I, I, I will say that as someone who grew up in a, very comfortably in, in, my, in my home with my family, you know, it was very valuable and very uh, important for us as a family to do things like go to the movies. It was part of our our bonding and and kind of more of a social experience. Being able to go uh, go on a trip together was yeah. very valuable. Being able to even go to an after school program and interact with kids. All of these things cost money, and we don't have money at the end of the month. Um, we are. Probably we are probably missing out, um, and then we have also more extreme situations from our, you know, from our report. Elena, a 49-year-old uh, renter in Denver, feels anxious. You know, you know, I'm. She says, "I'm so scared that right now I just pay my rent, my food, phone, and that's it. Sometimes I don't even trust myself to go to a restaurant. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll go out once in a while." Clothes. I won't buy. I won't buy extra clothes mm-hmm. because of the same reason. Um, I won't. I just won't spend any extra money because I just can't allow myself uh, to do that. And I think one of the one of the most uh, heartbreaking uh, stories that we we often think about um, is really <laughs> is really thinking about the families uh, families like Sophia in New York. You know, who lives in New York in a in a rent controlled apartment, and she she talks about how she only had at the end of the month she only has twenty cent twenty eight cents in her bank left over, and you just so yeah. you know it, it sounds more extreme, right? Than oh well, I can't go on a holiday. Well, Sophia's not thinking about <laughs> even yeah, a holiday. Even She's cards, thinking, yeah. how am I going to feed my kids? How am I going to save enough for the next month? How am I going to pay extra bills? We heard from uh, Carlos and his family in Washington, D.C., who was facing similar 
questions around which which bill should I pay this you know this month? Which bill can I not? Can yeah. I not? Which bills can I not afford to pay this month so that I can forego them um, for another month? And when we think about the burden and what are the consequences of this for families who are already earning a lower modest wage and annual income, you can begin to understand and uh, just feel the, the stress and effects uh, of, having, of having these high housing costs uh, be a burden. Yeah, it's. I was talking to um, somebody the other day. I kind of framed it as you know that this calculus that families make of like which bill can I just punt down the field this month, right? Which which can can I kick down the road that will have the least amount of consequences for us? Um, and ultimately, you just you you know you run out of field. You run there's mm-hmm. there's no more. It, it catches up with you and. Um, you know, it's like there's these just core things that that every family needs for a happy, healthy, thriving life, and it's it's housing, it's healthcare, it's transportation, it's savings, it's you know after school stuff for kids, it's food, you know, and so if there's like five or six core things, um, when you have these sorts of wages and housing eats up half of it, it's like here are the six things that are essential for you know a happy, thriving life. Uh, pick three of them this month, right? And you can't right. you can't live you can't live that way. And I, I'm glad you brought up the, like the vacations and the movie theaters because y- you do hear that a lot. And I, I just the the gall of of people to say, well, you know, when somebody says, well, you know, we had to cut back on vacation or we we never were able to go to the movies, and you know, the people that say, well, that's not important anyway, you know, t- tough luck. Um, you know, the heck it isn't important, right? Like, I mean, these things are really, they're, they're very important to me, vacation and all that sort of stuff. So um, I, I always find it um, aggravating that, you know, people say, well, that, that stuff's not important. Of, of course, of course it's important um, mm-hmm. for, for the health of a family. So I wanted to um, also ask about um, the moving, uh, moving mm-hmm. multiple times, mm-hmm. this, this, um, this instability that occurs. So there are some people, like you mentioned, who have been in the same small unit for 15 years, but there's also a lot of people that are just bouncing around from apartment to apartment and they're, you know, they're, 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 they're changing neighborhoods, which means they're changing schools and there's just a, a huge amount of instability there. What did you hear from folks around uh, just moving multiple times, which, of, you know, is a function of you can't afford the rent. And so you're, you know, possibly getting evicted or you're moving to a, you know, a cheaper place and you're just constantly on the move. Absolutely right, Mike. The 25 participants we spoke with have lived in their current rental units anywhere from one week to 18 years, Mm -hmm. with the renters spending an average about five years in their current homes. That said, moving multiple times in order to maintain affordability was really not uncommon. Uh, We heard from Antonella, a mother of two who who had lived in her current rental unit for a year and a half and told us about her story uh, searching for housing after first arriving in the United States. She says, when I came to the States, I lived one month with my ex-mother-in-law, I lived one with my ex-sister-in-law, then I lived uh, three months in one apartment with my ex-husband, and that was where everything fell apart, and we separated. Then after that, I lived in a car in a hotel. Then after that, I went to the shelter, uh, and her son was with her the whole time. Uh, and we went through everything together. So I think this also this story not only captures you know this the sense of instability that is 
you know, affects not just um, the adult breadwinner and maybe head of household, but also families and children. And also thinking about how invisible, uh, sometimes the more invisible side of people who are experiencing homelessness, we don't just because they're not uh, living uh, in a in a better just because they're not living on the street or in a tent doesn't necessarily mean that people aren't experiencing homelessness right. and, and right. stability. So this is another part of the story that I think is important. Uh, we also spoke with a woman in uh, Washington, D.C., who explained her complicated story. She moved multiple times to find a safe and affordable rental for her and their son. When she was married to her ex-husband, uh, she was very. She reported being very mis, very much mistreated. Um, her son was 11 years old at the time, and she and she herself had only been in this country for about a year, so she experienced uh, quite a bit of physical and, and psychological abuse. And one day, you know, she she just decided it was it was enough. She needed to move. Mm-hmm. to a place that was more safe and secure for her son. Uh, so she mentioned she had to move from an apartment with her her ex-husband. Um, so she went to live with her, uh, with a friend, and then she had to leave her friend's house because, because <laughs> since she found her friend had spent the money that she had been, okay. you know, been giving her, she took mm-hmm. all, she essentially, ev- her friend evicted her, then uh, she went to be with another friend, but there was an issue with children not wanting to share. You know, there were issues with other children in the household. Uh, but then the apartments, uh, you know, then she finally found an apartment uh, which accepted her section, her housing choice voucher, and they, uh, and she was able to secure a place to live. So the the tumultuous journey at times that families yeah. face, it's, it's, it can be very invisible even to a caseworker, to anyone, you know, who might see a, a woman walking down the street with her son, you yeah. know, may not, may not really understand, but you, we actually got a chance to hear from, you know, families, we understood some more uh, of the struggle. Uh, you know, just a, a couple other examples that I'll share is in Orlando, Florida, uh, you know, rent increases, you know, definitely, made it more difficult to stay in a place. Uh, Emilia in Orlando said, my rent is currently $1,500. They started at $1,400 and already, you know, hiked it up by $1,000, by $100 or more in, uh, you know, in a year. Uh, In October, when we have to renew, we don't know how much it's going to be. Uh, It's stressful because I don't want I'm going to find. I can cover the price or I'll have to move again. If it's too much, uh, but, you know, the amount, the increase, if the rent goes up again, I, I can't stay there. I can't stay there. So I have to find another place. Um, I don't know if there's any cap on rent increases uh, right. that could be helpful. How right. how can they increase our rent? I assume there's a maximum, right? Um, so, <laughs> so there is this real, you know, questioning also from families that we're hearing. And that's, it's very interesting because... It's worth noting that when we think about the housing market, there are certainly regulations in place, uh, especially around, you know, sometimes are in the mortgage market when families yeah. are thinking about buying a home and getting a loan. 
in the rental market, those those kinds of caps and regulations don't always look the same. No, yeah, I, you know, the, there's there was one thing as you were talking about all these these journeys. This this term just was was coming up in my head over and over, which is toxic stress. Mm-hmm. That what this does to people, right? This this uncertainty. This, I mean, it the the physical toll that it can take on people, the mental toll that it can take on people. I mean, the stories you just shared, that's sort of the definition of, of toxic stress and, and nobody should have to have to live like that. Um, so let's, I, I want to uh, transition um, to the, um, to the portion of the report that talks about people's desire to own mm-hmm. a home. Um, and it, it sounded like there was a very common thread that, people aspire to be a homeowner one day. Um, so hoping you can talk about what's what's appealing about that. What do people say? Why is that an aspiration? And then also what worries people about, um, about doing such a thing? Mm-hmm. So for many Latinos, especially across the country and nationally speaking, homeownership is a primary path to building wealth. And this, in our experience, in our experience and from the stories we, the families we heard from in the calling at home report, this this really wasn't any different uh, in terms of the desire. We knew that we've known anecdotally from other studies that Latinos tend to index and survey a little higher on the desire to own a home one day. And we got a snapshot from folks in Orlando, uh, especially even in New York City, you know, about why it might be appealing (laughs) at the end of the day to have a place of your own. And, you know, some of it was was not not surprising. Um, In Orlando, we spoke with Alejandro. Uh, You know, he he said that he wants to buy a home to be more comfortable. Uh, It's it's the best way to become more comfortable, to be to have a garden. And I'd like to plan to have to be able to pay for something that's mine. To have a sense of ownership. Yeah. Another resident in Orlando um, talked about being able to make changes to her home. So Isabella, who's 65, said, you know, you'll feel better in your own house because you can make your own changes to the house. My husband likes to take care of the house and now he's doing it for for somebody else. So I Mm -hmm. want to make it for me. So the sense of ownership, they'd be able to, the sense of, being able to take care of something that is your own and not have to feel like you have to wait for someone to take care of it for you. And it may not be made in, in the, or may not be repaired in the condition that you might like it or, or or need it to be done. Uh, The second reason we heard a lot about people wanting to buy a home with center and desire to invest in an asset, the ability to save. Uh, We heard from a New York city renter, Mia, who just said that, she would like to have something that's ours, to have an asset. At the end of the day, uh, all the stuff you learn in school is an indicator of wealth is owning property. That's one of the first things. You have something that's yeah. yours. Um, it would be how you know be great to own a house. Um, you could have a you know a house that's big enough for our family uh, and mm-hmm. be able to you know gen- be able to save you know an income and. Something else that we we did hear from folks from D.C., Denver, and San Francisco is they'd be able to pass something down to your family. 
and to the next generation. Mm. That was a really yeah. big thing. So Valentina Nandever said, you know, I want to, to, pay, to pay less money <laughs> for my yeah. housing yeah. so I can leave it for my kids. I want to be able to pass it down. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 lifelong. You can pass it down and it's generational. So, you know, I can leave, if I leave my kids anything, here is this land, go and do something with it. We hear this from Gabriella in San Francisco. So there is a sense of ownership and kind of pride, but also um, wanted to let you know that there is, that there's also these themes of this idea that being able to pass, save and, and pass on to the next generation was also really important. Yeah, at this at this moment of such division in our country, mm-hmm. it's so important to remember that that is something that unites people of all walks of life. This idea of you want your kids to do better than you did, and mm-hmm. it's something that just unites us at our core. Um, this is so so. There's this aspiration for homeownership, but there's but there's concerns that were expressed as well, right? There's right. the you know there's the additional responsibilities around maintenance and repairs. And there's, uh, of course there's, you know, credit and credit issues, uh, in terms of getting a mortgage. So people were still, you know, there was this aspiration, but they also acknowledged that this, you know, they would be concerned, um, with some of the aspects of it, given their current financial situation. Mm-hmm. I think the two key, two key reasons that the families that we spoke with, and the two themes that came out here were that some were very concerned about the shift to homeownership, the transition mm-hmm. from yeah. renting your home and paying rent only and not having to pay for right. other utilities uh, or there are costs that your landlord will take care of. So when you mm-hmm. own a home, you then have to take on all the responsibilities uh, that come with owning property and maintaining it. So that was one concern or one sense of kind of apprehension of how do I, you know, how, how will I transition given the fact that I'm spending so much on, on rent and how will I be able to take on those additional costs? Uh, Santiago in Denver said, you know, I mean, the whole process of owning a home, it's, it's a lot to take in because then we would have to pay insurance and water and we don't do that at the apartment. There's just a lot of things we don't think about trash collection, all that stuff. It's a big step. Um, It's all on you at that point, which I think very aptly describes the situation. At the same time, almost all participants felt it would be really difficult to find a home they could afford to buy. And I think this is a key barrier that we we keep hearing over and over again. Um, You know, that they said... Many times, many families said that it, where they lived in their city, the tight housing market made buying a home difficult, um, if not impossible. So we heard, um, you know, in Denver, Denver right now is the, the housing prices are really high. Um, and I see a lot of people moving out because it is expensive to live here. This is Anna in Denver, talking about how home prices mm-hmm. are pushing people out. So yeah. if you can only imagine how it is to try to be that person who wants right. to take right. the step. Um, Gabriela, born and raised in San Francisco and now renting uh, from family members in the same city, discussed the impact of speculative investment on our city's mm. housing market. So Gabriela says, you know, yeah, it would be difficult to buy because a lot of homes are being bought and flipped just to be rented out for Airbnb and other things. 
Um, I'll be walking past or driving past and I'll see buildings that are just empty. Um, and then six months later, it's still empty and you're like, what's going on? So I think there's another burden too is it's, I don't, you know, I don't know who's buying those homes, uh, but they're not buying them to fill them with, with local people. So this idea of being um, pushed out, right. being displaced, not being able to, to find a place because they're either being bought by, a, you know, an unknown landlord, unknown property owner, and not, not made available to people who could, who would be interested in buying them. Yeah. How does uh, immigration status impact? So we, we've talked about a range of, mm-hmm. of housing topics. Curious um, what came through in these interviews around the impact of one's immigration status. So it's a good question because immigration, it was the relationship between immigration status and affordability was not uh, very very direct, not in a direct relationship, or not a very okay. linear relationship. The majority mm-hmm. of families we spoke with uh, were actually native-born uh, citizens to the U.S. So there's a very even smaller sample of folks we spoke with who who may have uh, have a status that is either a legal permanent resident, perhaps have a VAWA uh, status or received um, protection. Uh, so that they can, or received a green card so that they can work in the United States uh, because they've been victims of domestic violence. So there are a mm-hmm. couple of different scenarios. And the, I think the, the demographics and experiences of, of our immigrant participants were very unique in the sense that there wasn't a shared thread of, you know, every immigrant family we spoke with had the same experience but the general mm-hmm. themes that came out is that immigration their immigration status affected their employment their employment yeah. affected their income right. and then their income affected their housing choice yep so what we how that plays out could mean could be i think explained better better explained in in a story so antonella a mother of two in phoenix can only afford her current rental unit because of the temporary rental assistance she receives from a direct service organization in her area. Her immigration status has affected her current employment. Then that affects her ability to afford uh, an apartment mm-hmm. at market rate. So she says, I only work 15 hours per week, so I get paid twice a month. I get the paid the 5th and 25th. So the 25th, I make sure that I'll have... Um, enough to cover the portion of rent that I owe. Um, when I used to work right on the border, I used to make at least $500 a week because of my immigration status. I cannot work more than three hours per day. So now hmm. I earn more like $100 most months. It's yeah. a big difference for me. But once I get the right, once I adjust my status, uh, I believe everything will change. When my work permit comes, I will have more hours and better opportunities. Um, she feels very comfortable. She says, I'm good about administrating my money. Uh, I think having a full-time job will definitely help me do that. And the point here is, Mike, is that, you know, what another invisible cost that some families have and take on is if if they have a specific visa to work in the United States or if the immigration status dictates how many hours and what kind of employment they they can take on, that will impact the level of income that they can take in, which will then affect the amount yeah. of income they can dedicate 
to housing. So that's, it's a very indirect and very complex, uh, unfortunately complicated way of thinking about affordability, but that is a reality for for our participants in this and the families in this uh, study who who really were, uh, you know, trying to figure out and navigate that, that system. Yeah, thanks for that. That was that was helpful um, for me to, to think through that. Um, okay, so so that's sort of the the current landscape today. Um, I want to have a conversation though, and I think you, you always have to have this conversation of how did it get this way, right? Like what what is the historical explanation here? And and, and to be more specific, um, you know, we're hearing more in the national conversation, and this is a good thing. Um, about the historical legacy of housing discrimination, redlining, segregation, essentially what Richard Rothstein um, outlines in his book, The Color of Law. Um, Several presidential candidates have mentioned uh, the legacy of of racist housing policies. Um, I want to ask you how this legacy has impacted Latinos. Mike, I think it's a good question because a lot is not known about how the explicit exclusion by our federal government uh, as early as the 1930s mm-hmm. has led to really harmful discrimination. And, and when I say discrimination, I mean a harmful the harmful legacy that you point out, uh, how that has affected Latinos and Latinos' access to a safe and affordable home. Mm-hmm. We are hearing these days about how his, you know, redlining has really created segregation, really drew away investment from communities of color in neighborhoods where, um, you know, that are predominantly, uh, you know, populated by communities of color. We're we're talking about not just African-Americans, but Latinos, Mm -hmm. Asian-Americans, uh, Native Americans and other uh, communities that uh, certainly are not um, are not seeing the same opportunities as uh, wealthier and and perhaps even even white communities across the yeah. country. So this this type of question is is under researched, yeah. and I think it's helpful to understand how Latinos, uh, you know, were, were first systematically excluded in the 1930s and to really make the connection to the Federal Housing Administration and the work of the economist Homer Hoyt, who in his 1934 dissertation created a, a ranking of various races and ethnicities by order of mm-hmm. desirability. So because yep. this person was, Mr. Hoyt was an economist, he decided that we would think about we could think about people as desirable, which I'm yeah. sure rubs you the wrong way as much as it does me uh, yeah. in this day and age. Um, the the harm and the the legacy really doesn't just stem from his his thinking and his thesis, but really how it was applied by the Federal Housing Administration when they adopted yeah. these rankings into the real estate appraisal system, which was then uh, adopted by the Home Owners Loan Corporation mm-hmm. or HOLC. Um, so HLC, HOLC created maps of American cities, 
most prominent in the 30s and 40s and assigned risk to those to neighborhoods and sections of the cities by levels or risk levels uh, to each neighborhood to determine whether mortgage lenders should make loans to these areas. So again, it was a the federal government through its appraisal system assigned risk levels to each neighborhood to determine whether investment, community development, investment, mortgage lending should be made in those areas. Yeah. The least risky uh, in, in order of these rankings were Anglo-Saxons and Northern Europeans. Mm -hmm. The most risky were neighborhoods where larger communities of African-Americans and Mexican-Americans lived. Yeah. Indeed, I quote, Negroes and Mexicans, unquote, were on the bottom of Homer Hoyt's list of desirable uh, communities in which to invest. And so yeah. that legacy continues. And oftentimes we think of uh, the race-based legacy as impacting African-Americans most. And it is, it is very true. And we want to underline that fact. We also want to recognize that there were many others on the list, including Mexicans as, as uh, rated uh, by Homer Hoyt, who were considered less desirable and therefore a higher risk uh, investment, which means their communities in which Mexican-Americans, African-Americans, Jewish-Americans lived were the ones that received the least amount of investment and suffered uh, economically as a result. It's such an important point that there there were others on the redlining list in addition to African Americans, and that includes Mexican Americans, and that was that Mexican Americans and African Americans were were lumped into the the bottom of this vile, horrible racial hierarchy. And you know, I would urge anybody that hasn't sort of looked at at this history, it, it's it's really important to look through and just the way that these communities were were talked about explicitly. Right, you'll you'll see terms that come up and how they were subversive, undesirable, um, uh, inharmonious. They were just like lower, they were considered lower grade populations. And it's just, I mean, it, it, it's important. Um, but but it, it's important to remember again that there were, um, there were others on the list in addition to African-Americans. Um, so at the, at the time, as you pointed out, at the time that redlining was prevalent during this New Deal era, uh, the the population of Latino people was just smaller than than what it is today. Um, I wanted to share an experience with you uh, that that I saw while working on housing issues in in Dallas, um, and hopefully you can kind of help me think through it. So there were you know we were observing several neighborhoods in Dallas, and what we appeared to be seeing was that the Hispanic population uh, was increasing, the black population was decreasing. And so Hispanic households were moving into these formerly redlined areas, uh, again, going back to our earlier conversation, largely because it's what they could afford. So, so in other words, Hispanic households were, were uh, moving into places that African-Americans left and they were inheriting the segregation, they were inheriting the, the disinvestment um, that was, you know, cemented long ago. Um, help me think through. I mean, is it is that what's happening? Is this a trend that we see across the country? Uh, what's your what's your take on that? Mike, I think the answer to that is yes. This is happening across the country. Many scholars okay. have really been 
studying this more recently, and when I say more recently, it's probably it wasn't until the early 2010s <laughs> that research had really researchers right, yeah. and scholars had really uh, explored what the impacts of this legacy of segregation and redlining had on communities that were not African American or or Jewish American. And we found that, and we've learned that between 1980 and 2010, segregation patterns for Latinos and African Americans actually began to converge. What this mm -hmm. means is that Latinos remained almost just as isolated from whites as black Americans are yeah. to whites. And as Latinos remain almost just as isolated from African Americans as well. Yeah. So yeah. there is, when you think about where people move and why they do it, you know, we our our, our report explores that through the stories of our families, uh, through stories of Latino families who've had to move for the reasons of affordability to uh, to find to find better opportunity, and you know what kind of impact does that have? We see that Latinos are inheriting, you know, the spaces mm -hmm. that, uh, especially in urban environments um, that, you know, have been experiencing or, or seeing higher levels of segregation as more traditionally experienced by African-Americans. And I will say that the traditional, when I mean by traditional, is not that African Americans were the only community right. experiencing segregation, yeah. is that it was most uh, deeply felt because of the differences in opportunity, the lack of opportunity uh, that is uh, really deeply felt in communities that have been, have felt years and years of disinvestment. So it's important yeah. to understand that you know, communities, regardless of who lives in the neighborhood, um, everyone feels, everyone in that neighborhood feels the effect of resources investment. At the same time, they also, everyone feels the effects of disinvestment and also lack of resources and opportunity. So that's, that's something I think is important to consider when we think about the effects, um, you know, of, se of segregation, the New York University of essentially the Furman Center of New York University has studied the impact of segregation on uh, Latinos as well as um, on the African-American community and, mm -hmm. you know, really found that the, the effects of segregation for Latinos and African-Americans are really quite similar. And I'll, I'll give mm -hmm. you an example, which I think is uh, quite uh telling because not not just because it's um so stark but because you know you kind of it makes you think and blink a little bit uh yeah. about about what what's really going on so you know in between you know between the in the last decades so this is again or last many decades Latinos were, uh, you know, essentially experiencing a lot more segregation, very similar to their uh, into their African American communities and brothers and sisters. Um, and what we, what the NYU uh, Furman Center found, is that Latinos and African Americans 
uh, are similarly affected in terms of, uh, for example, high school graduation rates and earnings. So higher levels of segregation are associated with dramatic reductions in earnings for both African-Americans and Latinos relatively relative to whites and similar for high school graduation and, and completion. And I think there's a great example here from the NYU Furman Center study that's looking at black and Latino segregation. For African-Americans, a move from Phoenix, a moderately segregated city with a black-white segregation score of 0.4 uh, to a highly segregated city like New Orleans would be associated with a reduced likelihood, so our, uh, you know, lower chances of high school mm -hmm. graduation yep. as compared with whites. For Latinos, a move from a moderately segregated Las Vegas to a highly segregated Los Angeles would be associated with a decreased likelihood of high school graduation yep. rate. So, so the effects are there, they're, they're yep. lingering. And I think as segregation continues to impact the Latinos and, and other communities of color, we will we will see those uh, effects uh, become more sharp and stark and a lot more shocking. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you pointed out that the effects of, of segregation are, are pretty similar for African-American people, Hispanic people. And, you know, when, when you spatially isolate any people uh, from resources and investment, these effects are entirely predictable and they're entirely disastrous in terms of health and education and and upward mobility. Um, so I, I'm really glad that you you were able to explain that um, so well. And, and um, it's just it's so important that we we pay attention to the, the history of this and how we arrived at where we are today. So you um, you end the report um, by saying action is urgently needed, um, and I think that takes us to. Uh, the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign and our policy agenda. Um, so, so tell us a, a little bit why Unidos U.S. Uh, joined the steering committee of the campaign. And obviously we, we wanted you there. <laughs> um, you, didn't, you didn't push your way in. We, we certainly wanted you there. But why did you all decide to, to do it? Well, I think there are a few reasons. And I want to share a little bit more about why we think action is urgently needed. I believe mm -hmm. those, this is also shared by all of the steering committee members and roundtable yeah. members of the Opportunity Starts at Home yeah. campaign. You know, we found that a lack of affordable rental housing has a significant impact on a family's economic security, feelings of safety in the neighborhood, their housing options, and their prospects of saving uh, for the future. And federal, state, and local policymakers must consider how they're going to respond to stabilize families and the circumstances they face, as well as address the lack of housing options for families who are earning an income that just does not is not sufficient yeah. to help them afford a home. Yeah. And we joined the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign because we understood how the housing crisis is, is affecting Latino communities at a very high level. And we understood that action is needed with a coalition. So Unidos US is a very large uh, organization in its own right. However, we understand yeah. that we can't 
work on this issue and be able to tackle housing affordability challenges that face our communities and, and Latino families across the country, you know, on our own, because we know that the communities uh, that are facing these challenges um, at the greatest level are also communities that are, are, are impacted and also supported by lots of other uh, national organizations, children's organizations, health organizations. There are so many other uh, principal players who, who are, who are going to be really needed to help elevate the issues and elevate the policies and actions that are needed to ensure that American families across the country have the opportunity to afford a home. And, uh, and, and we all are much stronger in a, in a very collective voice. So we, we really value being on the steering committee uh, to help guide and, and, and be really, you know, at the, be the first to hear about a very exciting <laughs> agenda to resolve all of these issues, but to be able to discuss and share what are the most important things that uh, the campaign needs to be working on and to work together uh, to to solve this, to address this crisis. Yeah. So uh, you, you mentioned the agenda. I want to uh, quickly ask just about some of the, you know, specific policy solutions that you think are promising in terms of tackling this problem, whether it's, you know, rental assistance or the trust fund, what are, what are some of the policy solutions that are at the top of your mind? First, we absolutely need dedicated funding, federal funding in affordable housing. Yeah. And this is not only in the development side, but also preservation. So we're talking, we need to build more homes. And we've heard this overwhelmingly from our affiliates, not only affiliates who are community development corporations and affordable housing developers, but also our affiliates who are working with families who just are having a hard time saving. So we, we, we understand that this issue is, is, a, is a national issue. And mm -hmm. we think that you do need federal investments, robust federal investments to ensure that funding is uh, available and is flowing down to the local level in a meaningful way to ensure that families have access to affordable rental housing to allow them to save and maybe even one day have the ability to purchase a home um, if that's if that's in the cards so we have been a supporter um, and of the housing trust fund of, of ensuring that more robust funds <laughs> are yeah. dedicated to this um, program and we think programs like that are very important Rental assistance is critical, and of course, expansion of the uh, how the Section Eight or Housing Choice Voucher yep. program, you know, very critical. Unidos US started lots of research and analysis on this, on the issues that Latinos face in actually acquiring and obtaining uh, housing assistance and rental assistance mm. uh, back in the '90s when it was just the administratively was too complicated. Yeah. And there wasn't, there weren't enough federal resources dedicated to ensuring uh, equitable access. So we believe that um, that more that change is needed. That we need to improve on current rental assistance, and of course, expand access so that more families have the ability to save, and in many ways, have a have a fixed level <laughs> of rent, yeah. have a very fixed, you know, have the ability uh, to afford their rent and stay in place. Uh, in an affordable place. Well said. Um, I, I'm reflecting back to a conversation 
we had prior where, you know, to kind of sum it all up that, you know, the, the Latino community is, uh, you know, the fastest growing demographic in this country. And if we can't meet the housing needs of this community, um, it's a, it's a major, major problem. Um, and those, the campaign, the policy solutions, they all kind of, um, go together and, and addressing this problem. So I want to, we're, we're out of time here, but I want to thank you so, so much, uh, for, for your expertise on this, uh, on this area and, and spending a little bit of time with us this morning. Um, wanted to just quick, quick hits here. Uh, where can folks uh, find the report that we talked about, uh, and where can they go to learn more about the work of Unidos U.S. and the economic policy project that you work on? Great. So the best place to find all of this information is by going to our website at unidosus.org. And you'll find information about our our blog. You'll find out information uh, about our publications, including the Calling at Home report. And also you can uh, check out information about the economic policy team. We are, we're also on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, of quite course. a few places. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you can check us out there. And, uh, you know, we, we're also really grateful for the opportunity. Mike, I really appreciate your time and, and your interest in this issue because, as you said, Latinos are, are driving household growth. And so it's not only important for Latino communities to, you know, afford housing, but it will be critical for all, you know, communities to yep. have access and opportunity to to having a safe and decent place to live. Um, and, you know, we, we, it is a shared interest and, and we're all in it together. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for your continued partnership. Pleasure having you on. It's Super Tuesday. I'm going to go vote right now, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully before the lines get too long. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Agatha. Thank Appreciate you, Mike. Time. All right. Take care. Take care.